The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, I'll be talking about the War of the Windsors, Labour's plans for the House of Lords, and the secrets of art forgery. First up, Freddie Gray looks at the royal knockout between the Waleses and the Sussexes. He joins me now with royal commentator Amanda Foreman. Freddie, the new Netflix documentary, Harry and Meghan, was released today on the day of recording. Can you start by giving us your reaction? Is it as incendiary as the palace might have feared? Well, I know the um, sort of intelligent or, or, or proper thing to say now is that you shouldn't watch it because you're just feeding the monster and you shouldn't do that. But I couldn't help myself. I also think, I thought if I'm going to write pieces about it, then I must watch it. So I watched it fairly early this morning, not not on the dot, but <laughs> about an hour after it was dropped. And I think it. I recommend people watch it actually, because I think it is comedy gold. I think it is extremely funny. Obviously, they don't. Harry and Meghan don't realise how funny it is, but I do think possibly some of the editors are in on the joke because otherwise I don't understand how they could have made them look quite so ridiculous. Do you have an example of the ridiculousness of... Yeah, I mean, so the opening scene, uh, or one of the opening scenes, is um, Megan with a towel on her head, sort of looking upset, but hamming it up terribly. There's this sort of awful jazz music. There's a sort of love section when they talk about falling in love. Uh, And Harry describes it as one of the great love stories, which is any man who describes his own love story as one of the great love stories, there's something seriously wrong with them. So there's sort of this terrible jazz music going on in the background. It's all absurdly over the top, and it manages to be hilarious and boring at the same time, mm. which is quite an achievement. But not so hilarious and boring, but not sort of a, not a point of concern for the palace, you think? I don't think, not yet. I mean, lots of little digs and things that could be taken out, and I think that's part of the... That's the sort of clever bit of it, I think, yeah. is that you can take out lines... And it sounds in the tabloids as though they're making some terrible assault. But actually, it's just a sort of self-pitying rant, you know, about living in the gilded cage of the monarchy. And you do sometimes think watching it, you know. I mean, yes, it would be difficult to grow up as a a member of the royal family. But, you know, there are more difficult things to be born into. And um, you just want to say you cannot have royals who spend their entire lives talking about themselves and pitying themselves. It's just pathetic. Well, Amanda, can we get your reaction to to the documentary? Is it hilarious, incendiary or a damp squib? Mm. Well, the problem with the documentary is it's trying to do too many things at once because it, it has at least four agendas. So first of all, you have Netflix, their agenda, which is simply to get subscribers. So they, they just want to sell. And you know, when they sell, they go for a, you know, a certain aesthetic, a certain look, a certain claim. You know, it's all bells and whistles. Then you have Liz Garbus, the, the director. 
And you know, no, she's the real thing. She doesn't want to be seen as a gun for hire. She wants to make something that leaves her dignity intact. So she's trying to present a, a human story. It looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It's really well edited. And then you have Harry and Meghan. And they're riding two horses at once. One horse is they, as they say in this country, in the US, they want to relitigate their divorce with their family. And so they have scores to settle. They've got some things they really want to get off their chest. On the other hand, they also want to relaunch themselves as social justice warriors, as a kind of, you know, Angelina Jolie double act who are going to go off and save the world. But those two horses are actually headed in a different direction, even if they're trying to ride them right now. So the documentary cannot fulfill all these things at the same time. And, and you can see it creaking and straining throughout all three episodes that have already been dropped. Freddie said just then that he believes there's only so much people can can hear about royals when they're talking about themselves. I mean, especially when they're talking about themselves in a self-pitying way. Do you think that's that's true? Or do you think actually Harry and Meghan might have been quite successful insofar as they have made themselves into big celebrities with this documentary, a, a kind of reality TV stars to rival the Kardashians, and, and people are watching. People do want to, uh, uh, want to see what they have to say. Well, I'm going to disagree with Freddie here to the extent that the opening shot of Meghan in her, in her towel with her wet hair and no makeup was actually standard for US reality TV. It is a signal, it's like a trope that you'll see with the Kardashians or Gwyneth Paltrow or any of this lot, that when they want to show themselves being real, they will have a, a photo of themselves or a shot of themselves without their makeup, you know, in a towel, in a dressing gown, that kind of thing. And, and, and that's how American audiences are going to read it. And, and that's meant to be kind of thrilling and exciting. And it's, you know, this is, this is real, folks. Unfortunately, the, the documentary then immediately undermined itself. And I think that Freddie is right in that some of it is literally unintentionally hilarious. With a shot of Megan going off to the her really amazingly fancy chicken coop, which is straight out of Marie Antoinette and Saint Cloud to feed her chickens, which must be the most expensive chickens in California. And yes. then she you know, goes around with her roses. And these are the best looking roses I've ever seen. I don't, I don't know how she managed to get them to look so full and so bloomy. So it, it, it's, it's just, there's a kind of certain amount of unconsciousness that's kind of put off a lot of Americans. And there's already been quite a lot of back chat about, oh, you know, that she's crying in front of a $1,500 Hermes throw blanket and things like that. But, you know, we now have super fans and super fans stick with these things no matter what. Freddie, Amanda said just then that she believes that some of the decisions in the documentary will put off Americans. Uh, but we, we ran a piece in the magazine this week by Tina Brown, who believes that although we in the UK might be laughing at all this, Harry and Meghan are winning the PR war uh, for Americans, that actually there's a lot of American support behind them because they see the royal family as very stuffy and maybe a bit racist and all the rest of it. Yeah. Do you think actually for the people they're really targeting, which isn't us, it's an American audience, they might be more... Sympathetic. I know what Tina Brown's getting at there, and it's a point you hear quite a lot, actually, that, you know, whereas in England people might get their backs up and be revolted by, actually, all of America is insanely woke, and so they love Harry and Meghan. And, of course, it's complete rubbish. Most of America find it funny or ridiculous if they think about it at all. Yes, the people Tina Brown meets in New York probably think 
that, you know, sort of talking about structural racism is what you have to do now to be on the right side of history. But they are wrong. And also, even if they're right, I mean, I love America, but as a Brit, and not particularly keen monarchist or anything, but as a Brit, I mean, does it really matter what Americans think about our royal family? I don't care about the Kennedys or the Kardashians very much. I think it's sort of, it, it's a sort of odd point that people make because I think they think it makes them sound smart. I'm not suggesting Tina Brown does that for a moment. <laughs> but maybe there's a little bit of that. And um, Amanda, to what extent do you think that the split in support between the Sussexes or the Waleses is generational? It's something you've written about before and I wonder if you could explain your theory to our listeners. Well, my theory is that if you are over the age of 35, you are more likely to be a William and Kate fan. And if you are under the age of 35, then you're much more likely to feel some kind of affinity with Harry and Meghan. And that's because they have very consciously set out to portray and uphold very different values that have a generational divide. So William and Kate, they represent older values, probity, decency, self-sacrifice, quiet determinism, determination to do the right thing. That is the age-old values of the monarchy. But Harry and Meghan have really zeroed in on what you might call the TikTok generation. And that is finding selfhood, self-actualization, self-love, self-care, self-expression. They are the selfie generation. And so the problem, though, is that because the TikTok generation, that kind of selfie Instagram generation is one world in many ways. What happens in the US among that generation will percolate and go over to the UK and have an effect and influence a younger generation. And so it is bad, quote unquote, bad for the monarchy when one half of America, the younger half, an influential half, has an idea that is so completely negative and against all the values that the monarchy represents. And Freddie, just finally, looking ahead then, we've had quite a few um, bombs detonated, I suppose, by the the Sussexes in this war against Buckingham Palace. One big thing coming up in January is Harry's book, Spare. Uh, Is it true, what I believe you've written about before, that the the rumour has it that, that it is the book that actually the Palace are most worried about, more so than... The documentary more so than any of the I, other bombs. I thought so for a moment there you were going to say, "Is it true that William's book is going to be called Air?" <laughs> Which I just hope will be, be true amazing. at some stage. So uh, but I don't think it is. What, what is it true that the palace are worried about spare more than spare. they are worried about all, yeah. any of the so, other? So I mean, from what I've been able to understand, yes, I think they are, there's concerns that spare is going to go after Camilla. And I think it's very interesting that these, you know, William, Kate, and to a certain extent Charles too, have always tried to show themselves as progressive people. And yet actually they behave like patriarchs, like sort of medieval knights when it comes to their women. Because they are all, you know, saying, you know, the line is drawn when you go after my wife. And, you know, that's it. And so, that, and so I think that's where things could really get very, very nasty. If there's more sort of slight unpleasantness at Kate in the in the Netflix documentary and if there is a sort of bit about Camilla in the book and there probably will be some father stuff uh, mm. in the book about that because his ghostwriter J.R. Moringer wrote this book about Andre Agassi or ghostwrote this book autobiography of Andre Agassi which was very much about sort of you know damage of of his parents and 
and how messed up he was by his father. So it's quite possible there's going to be a bit of that. And I think it's interesting what the man said about Liz Garbus and J.R. Moringer. They're not getting trashy. They're not getting like lowbrow people to do these things. These are sort of very chic, elite, if you like, artists they're getting to work on this. But if you watch the, the first episode of the, of the Netflix documentary, as I did this morning, it's crap. And, like, and Liz Garbus, Liz Garbus who, who is this very well-respected sort of hot director, you know, she reduces herself to wearing a mask, go, going around with a laptop and showing Harry and Meghan footage of Meghan, you know, being um, asked whether she'd rather have William or Harry, you know, rather marry William or Harry. And it's so craven. And you think, like, you know, where's your dignity gone? And this is the problem with, with monarchy, is it's not that it's got not their dignity, it's that it reduces everyone else to these slobbering wrecks. Thank you, Freddie and Amanda. Next, should the House of Lords be reformed or even abolished? That's the question the Spectator's diary editor, James Heal, asks in this week's magazine. And he joins me with Baroness Fox of Buckley, an unaffiliated peer in the Lords. James, just to start with, could you bring our listeners up to speed with the plans that Labour have announced this week mm. based on Gordon Brown's recommendations? Sure. So on Monday, Gordon Brown has unveiled a big report following a constitutional convention and it said that uh, Labour should adopt backing a Senate of the devolved regions and nations. Now, there's still not lots of detail on what that uh, upper house, that second chamber, will look like. It'll presumably be elected in full some capacity, but basically it means kind of abolishing the Lords in its current composition. Although, as we say, details yet to emerge on the kind of voting system or any kind of things around that. But it would be in the first term of a Labour government, according to Keir Starmer. And Claire, I wonder what your reaction was to Gordon Brown's recommendations and also perhaps how you think the news has been received by your colleagues in the House. Well, I don't know that my fellow peers would call themselves my colleagues, as I say, say, as a non-affiliated peer. But... It's interesting because I would say that the Labour peers are not enthusiastic about a Labour proposal in this instance, is my reading of the <laughs> event. Because they are, they, are, they are rather enthusiastic about keeping a position in which they often win votes in the House of Lords mm. because the opposition voices in the House of Lords quite outnumber the Conservatives, no matter how many people have been put in there by Boris Johnson partly because the Conservative Party is split in two and partly because the crossbench peers often act as a kind of liberal opposition to the a kind of legal opposition to the Conservative government. What I think about the proposals is that I was actually cheering when um, Keir Starmer said we're going to abolish the House of Lords and then I was rather disappointed when there looked like a U-turn was in place. But let me make it clear that the problem for me about the House of Lords is that it's completely undemocratic. There is no basis on which I am there. Um, And (laughs) I I, I appreciate that your listeners now will be cheering when they hear that, but it's not just me. I mean, it's who is anyone in the House of Lords, you know, appointees. Labour peers make a big fuss about hereditary peers being the problem. There's 92 of them. Hmm. But I've always thought that they're no less legitimate, even though the hereditary system is arcane to say the least but on the other hand being a kind of chum of a prime minister or being put in there on the whim of a prime minister hardly seems to me to give you any more authenticity or legitimacy but I would go for a 
unicameral system, I do not think there should be a second mm. chamber. So what's scary about the proposals from the Labour Party is that it takes the form of a, oh, well, we can vote for people. Mm. But actually, this will be a real challenge to the real seat of democracy, which is the House of Commons. And despite all of our frustrations about the House of Commons not being up to par, mm. nonetheless, that's where the people of this country vote in their representatives to run the country or to represent them in their constituencies. Do, do, you, worry, do you worry, though, Claire, that if there were no second chamber, it was abolished entirely, that the if the function of the House of Lords is to essentially be often a voice of hesitation about badly thought out bills and to point out problems with bills. I mean, do you not worry that that, that a result of abolishing the Lords would be very sloppily put together bills, mistakes coming into law that haven't been thought through or pointed out and so on? But isn't that disastrous? So what happens is that the status quo position is it's fine for a government to write sloppily, uh, badly worded bills because somewhere down the corridor in the House of Lords, they'll correct it. I mean, we need better government. That's a, it's hardly an excuse, is it? The idea that you've got to have 800 people in order to check whether a bill is written well. Your point about hesitation, maybe think again. It's been a while, I think, and, and maybe the turning point was, like with so much else, Brexit. But it's been a while since... It's simply been a place that reads a bill carefully and suggests that there might be unintended consequences, which, by the way, I think can be done by Commons committees. I mean, I'm not opposed to the Commons itself regulating its own legislative programme. That would be the way I would go. At the moment, the House of Lords almost acts as an opposition to the to the government of the day. And by the way, that would be the Labour government if it was the Labour government. They act as an independent political voice. And although they constitutionally can't change everything, Mm. I have watched, particularly this Conservative government, amend and change legislation that they wanted to put through, using the Lords as the excuse to water down proposals which actually should not have been watered down, didn't actually reflect their wishes or the wishes of, of a democratically elected chamber, as in the Commons. The bit about this is funny, it reminds me of the EU, because what they do is they say, what can we do? We've got all these opposition in the Lords, so what we'll do is we'll keep the Lords happy. It's like, who are the Lords? I mean, who are the Lords to do that? So whilst I use the Lords as a platform to argue the kind of political direction that I think the country should be going in, Mm. and it's a very privileged position to be in, I ultimately think that I need to give way to the Commons, even when I disagree entirely with what the Commons are doing. It's fine for me to make my speeches, Mm. put them on social media, get people talking. That's my job as the director of the Academy of Ideas. That's what I want to do. It's not the same as me actually having sway, and not just me, but any of us having sway on the government, not just thinking again, but changing direction on a particular piece of legislation because it can't get it through the Lords easily. James, I wonder why you think it is that that Starmer has made the Lords the focus recently. I mean, on the one hand, I suppose you could say that it's quite a cheap, literally quite a cheap uh, thing to to propose. It's given the the financial straits of the country, you're not promising any more spending by Mm. promising to reform or, or abolish the Lords. But at the same time, it 
would it not take up a huge amount of kind of government bandwidth, so to speak, in a first yeah, term? Yeah, I, I, I would be that. amazed if Keir Starmer, looking around the state of the country with a broken health service, so many public services not working, all the rail strikes, etc., decides, ah, yes, bicameral legislation, that is the battle cry in which we will send our armies. I think that uh, this is just very good politics. I think it's a good way to energise the base. Labour are losing votes to the Lib Dems and the Greens, and they're disproportionately more likely to vote for this policy. I think also that it's a good way of keeping Gordon Brown out of mischief, and to, this is something he <laughs> (laughs) wants to do very passionately and also it's a good way to punch a Tory bruise as my colleague James Forsyth wrote last week which is that you're going to have these resignation on this list of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and it's a good way when that comes up it'll dominate the news agenda for 24 or 48 hours and every Labour spokesman can go out there and say well we'll just abolish the Lords we will sort the system out and it's a good way of putting clear blue water between Labour and the Tories on a change platform so that's all the reasons for it I don't think anything will come of it but we shall see if Keir Starmer can do different let's say that that Gordon Brown's ideas do do end up being implemented by the next Labour government. I mean, could it be rather like the devolution settlement we've seen in Scotland? Mm. It could be a case of be careful what you wish for. I mean, could you not end up with even more challenges to the executive from other parts of the country that that just ends up with this deadlock system that we see all the time with the Scottish government sort of clashing with Westminster? I mean, I think it's perfectly feasible to say that if this kind of uh, regional hyper-devolution happened, as Gordon Brown would like it to, that something like Brexit just would not have happened. It would not have got through our political system. I mean, this is the point. So Labour say they want people to be empowered, citizens to be empowered. Now I ask you, which is being more empowered? Having public services that run well, that make you feel like you're in control and can do basic things like that, or is it having two sets of politicians both claiming the same mandate to represent you? And I think Claire's actually articulated the old classic Labour left position, which was abolition, which is kind of, we'll just have one house represent you. And what the kind of Gordon Brown shift represents in the 90s was a shift to having kind of two elected chambers and the danger for that of course is you then have conflicting mandates you know are we going to have someone say represent the southeast of the country you know a region which i sit in but have no kind of you know it's not the old sort of pre-1974 systems of counties you know you don't feel like oh i'm a you know southeast boy you know it's so i don't really understand what i'm actually of, a south saxon through exactly you know how do we get on this basis of who sits for who but but the, the, the important point here is really is that i've never really met any politician who wants to give away power and so i'm amazed at the number of mps who are queuing up behind this to go yeah 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 i mean actually when it comes to it i think both will try and um will try and claim the power over uh, and say that they have legitimacy. So I'm not really sure if that's actually going to go ahead because I think, as Claire says, abolition is probably more likely. So I think that there's, there's, there's a number of factors. The, the first thing to, to note, and it's very important, is that this is not a step forward for democracy. So saying you can vote for a second chamber does not make it more democratic because actually if you look at the whole constitutional view, I think the word democracy appears something like 19 times and the word devolution appears 90 times this is about the dispersal of power and actually in my very brief time in the uh, in brussels and, and and strasbourg in the european union as an mep i was really taken by how the nation states was under attack even less than the idea of a kind of EU presence, but the EU were arguing for regionalism. So what they were basically saying was the nation state 
is a problem and we are going to undermine it and we're going to have the create important regions that will relate to each other across national boundaries. This is actually an attack on the nation state. And the reason why that's important is the nation state is the democratic expression of the people of a nation. And so if you start saying, as we've seen this, of course, in relation to Scotland and, and Wales and the devolution settlement, but if you start having even more, you know, Greater Manchester and its voice, mm. you know, Birmingham and its voice, which, by the way, the mistake here is to suggest that if you've got politicians who have voted locally and physically, geographically closer to you, that makes them more representative of your wishes. I'm from Wales. I have family in Wales. They live very close to the seat of power in Wales. Let me tell you, <laughs> they might as well be a million miles away yep. because the people who sit in Cardiff Bay and run Wales are a small clique. It is utterly impenetrable unless you're part of that clique mm. it's kind of it's the worst of Westminster with a parochial twist that's the only way to describe it you do not have any more power but what the clever politics is just finally on this bit is that the Tory manifesto in 2019 talked about a constitutional review mm. have we seen anything of no. it no uh, the even the new Reform Party was named Reform because it wanted to have a major constitutional review. Have we seen anything of that? No. no. The Labour Party say, oh, we do need a bit of a constitutional shake-up and we want to give people control. Mm. Which, obviously, where did that slogan come from? You know, yeah. take back control. I don't think the proposals in Gordon Brown's report are going to empower people at all. I think that it's actually, it mm. will empower local mayors. It will create a whole new Stop set creation. of a political elite in local and regional areas who will be as undemocratic as appointed House of Lords people, just with accents. And then what you're going to have <laughs> is people saying, well, this is democracy and giving people back control. For ordinary citizens of this country, mm. they're going to still have no control. But I can't blame the Labour Party for a serious report, I and mean, it's 155 yeah, yeah. pages, of going into a space which everybody else just avoided. And I think popular opinion does think... What is the House of Lords? Yeah. And they did try actively to stop Brexit. Mm. That's one of the big breaches where they really, they kept saying no, 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 we know best. And if you look at all of the dynamic around green and environmental net zero policies, it all comes from the House of Lords who are basically like, just stop oil without the kind of, you know, radicalism. But their politics are like that but they have the kind of expertise badge to push it. I just want to add a couple of things, one of which is, I think Claire touched on a fundamental issue, which is the nation state, which is why in 1968, when Harold Wilson, who Keir Starmer's often compared to, tried to propose House of Lords reform, a series of issues, it was Enoch Powell of the Tory right, sort of you know, champion of the nation state, combined with Michael Foote, who was the great um, standard bearer of the Labour left. Don't compare me to Enoch no, Powell. No, 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 at, sorry, I was just, sorry, this, sorry. At this moment in time, <laughs> sorry, I live with that. Uh, forgive me, sorry. But the point is... compared to Michael Foote, but I <laughs> but my problem point was this is the whole point which is that about the nation state actually where power really resides and will people feel more empowered by job creation of course the one time we did have a, a, a um 
referendum on having a regional assembly was in the northeast, and Dominic Cummings used that as a perfect test case for uh, Brexit, and it was overwhelmingly rejected. John Prescott's uh, devolved regions by eighty percent. I mean, it was the question is, I mean, when people go and vote on a manifesto, the point is that people were voting on the economy and like one or two issues, maybe like small votes, etc. They won't be debating on this. I'm not sure that if it's sort of foisted on people whether they actually will have that kind of you know association with. It. I think at the moment we had a very simple system, which was you vote for your MP in the House of Commons, you could vote them out if they didn't work. And it was kind of beautiful and simple. And I think the danger is that kind of gets watered down where you don't have accountability. And one thing I've seen proposed is for any clashes between elected lords and commons, which was coming out this week, was we have some kind of system of judges to decide who was right. Oh, I, think that, yeah. I think that is a very worrying uh, Actually, suggestion. It's, in your, it's in your article, James, where you also mm. talk about, and this is actually, there's a, there's a private member's bill, I think, going through the lords as we yeah. speak, which is to have a committee mm. so that you will take the power of appointing lords from the Prime Minister of the day, retiring or otherwise, mm. or resigning or otherwise, and give it to a committee of worthies who will decide who is worthy to go in the House of Lords. I mean, can you imagine anything would more... Would you get past that? Anti- oh, I would <laughs> have failed, at, fallen at the first hurdle, let me assure you. Um, but, well, who are they going to be, right? Who's mm. going to decide them? Can you imagine anything more bureaucratically anti-democratic than a group of worthies deciding the kind of worthies and the great and the good that they'd like to sit next to? I mean, they turn their nose up at me all the time. I sit on the very back seat, you know, like the back seat, <laughs> uh, with, with Kate uh, uh, Howie, Baroness Howie, and we sit behind the Labour benches. They viscerally don't want us mm. there. They keep telling me to go away. <laughs> They're kind of... I, I'm not like doing the mean that. girls I'm, politics. Yes, yeah. I'm not actually doing Can't a kind of us. victim uh, point here. But it's because they have a conception of the type of people that they want in the House of Lords. It's people like them, yeah. which is kind of chums around parties and so on and so forth. And there's a group of people that they don't want there. So I... This idea that they would decide is horrendous. But what I think a constitutional review could do, and this Mm. is what would be much more, is could we have a better system of recalling politicians, MPs, Mm. you know, Mm. Matt Hancock goes into the jungle and the local constituency just quite straightforwardly say, right, you're out. Because one of the things that is not convincing about our democratic system is that you vote every four or five years... It's very difficult to then say to people, well, you have a chance to get them out Mm. when you feel as though you don't. Another thing that has to be looked at is first past the post, whether we like it or not. People do not feel represented. People can get millions of... A new party could emerge and get millions of votes and no MPs. There's a sense in which there is frustration that you, in certain areas, will never be able to change things and never be able to get rid of your MP. So I haven't got any answers. I'm not very good on this stuff. I simply mean... I think that a constitutional review could actually take on the real problems, mm. which is how you make commons representation and those MPs more democratically accountable to the voters. I think Claire hits on a good point, which is I think actually reform of the House of Commons, ironically, is more likely in the House of Lords than the next Parliament if voting reform goes ahead. Because I think now there's increasing pressure. We see some on the right. Reform has already got behind the cause. And I think Labour, the, Labour, the Labour Conference just passed a motion supporting some proportional representation systems. So I think that'll be really interesting. And if that changes, that is a whole... So both, cha- both chambers of parliament, there's a whole game changer potentially uh, for what our political system's going to look like. Which, by the way, I just wanted to say one thing is, if the Labour Party were to abolish the House of Lords, I can't begin to tell you, this would be a bigger constitutional crisis. Hmm. And when I say crisis, then Brexit ever threw yep. up. Mm-hmm. The, I, I didn't understand any of this stuff before I went in a couple of years ago. But I now know that these two chambers are 
intimately linked. Yeah. Mm. It's the way that law has been made for a very long time. So if you actually get rid of one of the chambers, this is like, this isn't some minor little moment, right? This yeah. is every single way that you make a law will be in a different they they literally won't know what to do. Yeah. So if they didn't know what to do when we weren't in <laughs> Brussels, because yeah. you know we all know that the ruling elite basically consists of lawyers who can interpret European law for so many years that they've forgotten how to rule. Yeah. Well, now we've got a system which is entirely dependent on people understanding that it goes between the Commons and the laws and the Commons and the law. This just won't straightforwardly become a, a seamless move. And mm. so actually, I don't think they'll have the courage to do it. That's one thing. But secondly, major constitutional questions do need to have some thought given to mm. the consequences of them and the unintended consequences of them. Thank you, James and Claire. Finally, in the book section of the magazine, Chloe Ashby reviews Con Slash Artist, the memoir of the notorious art forger Tony Tetro. Both Chloe and Tony join me now alongside the investigative journalist Gian Piero Ambrosi, who co-authored the book. Chloe, to start us off, could you tell us what your impression was of Tony before you read the book? Were you familiar with his work beforehand? And has your impression changed after you finished? Great question. So no, I wasn't familiar with uh, Tony's work, which I almost feel embarrassed saying, especially knowing that he's listening to me. But I think one thing that's really important to say for anyone listening is that you don't need to have heard of him to enjoy this book. And you also don't really need to have any knowledge of the art world, I would say. I mean, when I went into it, the book is, it's sort of fun and exhilarating. And I think I, I write in my review that there's a kind of a whiff of a bad boy memoir about it. But the thing that really stayed with me throughout was this sort of beneath the, the grit and the glamour is this real diligence and this self-taught artist who has a really great work ethic and a natural talent and also who just really loves art. I mean, there were there are moments that I can think of now and it was a little while ago that I read the book at this point, but he describes visiting Rome and you can really, his passion really comes across for the works he sees there, in particular, the Caravaggio and I think that was the thing that, that stayed with me, really, the, the passion, his passion for art and his work ethic. Yeah. And Jean Piero, could you tell our listeners a little about how you met Tony and why it was that you wanted to help him tell his story? Sure. I met Tony 20 years ago when I was just a cub reporter. Tony had just gotten out of jail. He was down on his luck. He was living in a crummy motel next to Chinese restaurant and he was broke. So instead of driving around in Ferraris, he was driving around in a Honda hatchback. But the thing about Tony was that he was still very upbeat and had this joie de vivre and he had this kind of cast of crazy characters around him. And, you know, immediately I liked him. You know, he would tell me these stories and I'd ask him questions. And so for 15 or 20 years, we've been thinking about, you know, we should write a book. We should write a book. And it wasn't until 2020 when we were filming this documentary that suddenly got stopped because of COVID that we had this window where we thought, okay, now is the time to write this book. And so we did. We sat down. We had six months. And, you know, I interviewed Tony mercilessly and wrung him dry and wrote this book. <laughs> he asked me five, ten times the same question <laughs> for six months. And so, uh, yeah, we got to the point. 
we had a point where we weren't going to talk to each other anymore. <laughs> Tony, did you give the same the same answer every time, or did your answer change? My what he was trying to get at is the truth, the the unbridled. Like I would add something. That's what I want. I would add something in one of my answers that he was looking for because he mm-hmm. talked to me so much in the last twenty years. It's actually longer than twenty years, and that he knew the answer to a lot of the questions he's asking me. I'll, I'll give you one quick example. So I asked Tony, he said, oh, when I was nine, we took a trip to California. And I said, well, you know, what were you wearing? And he said, who cares what I was wearing? And I said, well, were you wearing a suit or what were you wearing? And that was kind of an indication of, was this a big deal? Did your family travel frequently? Were you wealthy? Was it a great mythical thing for a child? So Tony, if I may, I want to ask ask you about something which Chloe wrote in her review and, and just said again now on the podcast that the impression she got of you from from the book is that you're a diligent self-taught artist you know with this with this work ethic and this great natural talent I suppose a lot of our listeners will be wondering then if that's the case why why turn to a life of crime of of art forgery what what led you down that path rather than um, being an artist sort of in your own right I suppose okay uh, what do you do to be by the way, it's very difficult to become a successful artist. I wasn't a college graduate. Hell, I wasn't a high school graduate. I went to local art fairs and tried to sell myself. I would do a Rembrandt, and they would do a canvas with colors that would match someone's sofa. Ouch. <laughs> and so I put too much time and effort in my paintings, and they didn't sell. <laughs> and, and so I walked into a – I was shopping. And there was a a carousel of paperback books, and I grabbed one called Fake by Clifford Irving. Uh, Clifford Irving himself became a big, big story because he he forged the Howard Hughes biography. But that's another story. But anyway, the book is was good. He he wrote it well, and all through it, I'm I'm reading. I go, I could do this. I could do this. So I tried. I did a Modigliani drawing, brought it to an auction house, and they gave me $1,600, and that was supreme wealth to me. I, you know, I asked for much more. I asked for four or 5000 I forget exactly. And he gave me 1600 and that was the beginning of my career. Being that a Modigliani was my very first forgery, I went too high on the art scale. I should have done... Oh, a local artist named Robert Wood, who's very popular. He had just simple prints, landscapes and seascapes. That's what I ended up doing for this man that I sold the Modigliani to. And I wonder, so of your, your, your career, you forged all sorts from Rembrandt's, Picasso's, Renoir's, just to name a few. Which artists do you think you were best at and, and, and which did you enjoy doing the most? Well, without a doubt, I, I enjoyed Caravaggio. I studied him so much that I do a lot of Caravaggio, but I do old masters and I do Picasso. Nobody's asked me for a Chagall recently, but back in the day when I was, you know, doing this as a profession, I did a lot of Chagall. I did a lot of Miro. I did a lot of Picasso. The only ones I'm really asked to do are old masters, Caravaggio and Picasso now, because I'm known for both, but I'm also known for Chagall. I have, yeah, I'm asked for Chagall's, but Miro and, and Dolly, I haven't been asked to do in a while. I would do whatever I was asked. I was asked by art dealers 
And that's what makes me a little unique on this. I was foolish in accepting these art dealers and doing their work for them. So I had like seven customers that would call me all the time. And then I got into the print business, lithographs and etchings. I started doing those because that print market was very big at the time. Uh, Chloe, I I wonder what your thoughts are about. I want to talk to you about the title of the book, which is, of course, Con Slash Artist. And your impression of Tony when you'd finished reading it, I want, to, I want to ask you, do you come down more on the, on the side of con man or on the side of artist? Or do you left with the impression that it's a false dichotomy by the end of the book? It, then if you read the book, you'll understand that what happened was I was a con artist when I was a boy. 21 years old is when I started. 22 when I sold at Modigliani. I walked from gallery to gallery and that's how I did it. But what really happened is a, a man from New York with a thick Brooklyn Bronx accent, he bought everything from me. Chagall, Miro, Dolly, Picasso. I did gouaches for him. I did drawings for him. I told him they were uh, my grandfather's. And he's given them out to the family so it won't go through probate. We have this thing in the United States. It goes through probate and the, the government takes some money. So if I sold it before he died, he was... He was ill. And, and oh, no, he never was ill. <laughs> I told him he was ill. I had to remember. Remember, this was, you know, 50 years ago when I said my father, my grandfather's giving out his art collection now so it won't go through probate. Well, this man bought everything Bernie, his name was, bought everything I did gouaches, drawings, lithographs, etchings, and he sold them. And then Somehow, eventually, he found out that I did every one of them. And so he told all these art dealers to stay away from this Tetro. He's a forger. Stay away from him. And the, the art dealers contacted me. <laughs> so, so they contacted me, and I did, I did work for art dealers. And I might point out this while I remember it. Each and every one of my customers, which were art dealers, made much more money than I did. I was a bad businessman. I was a good artist, not a good businessman. <laughs> and uh, Jean-Pierre, I want to ask you about uh, this documentary that you're producing as well, about the King Charles's uh, royal art collection scandal, uh, which has been sparked, I believe, after Tony claimed that three of the pieces on display were actually created by, by him. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your part, how this scandal broke. Sure. In 2017, uh, Tony went to visit James Stunt at his home. And while he was there, he was left alone a lot because James was up all night and slept during the day. So one day, Tony is at the table and he sees these legalese contracts and just fragments of them. And it happens to have photos of the reproductions, the fakes done as reproductions for his home on them. Tony said, wait a second, something fishy's going on, snapped a few photos, and when he came back, he showed them to me. So I looked at them and I thought, well, I don't know what this is, but it's not good, and something's going on. So what we did was we spent about three years, including using, you know, undercover film crews and things uh, to learn what James Stunt was up to. We were able to film in his home and see his collection and you know, while he's giving this tour, he's 
showing these Tony Tetros on the wall and saying, oh yes, I bought this at Sotheby's for a million pounds, when in fact it was clear that it had been, you know, sold by Tony for 50,000. And then he went and he got these, these pieces of art into the Royal Collection as part of a much larger scheme. And that scheme was to put together a collection that was blessed, you know, by majesty and then turned around and went to lenders and said, look, my collection's worth 300 million pounds. Can you lend me 150? Knowing full well that even if he left the collateral behind and kept the money, he was still making 145 million pounds on the deal. So we spent three years investigating that. We brought some of that to the mail on Sunday in 2019 and then continued to go down that path. This is all chapter 25 of the book, uh, the parts that we could tell in the book there'll be more much more in the film but it's been an adventure i will say that yes my, my final question tony to you if i may is that chloe described just now in the podcast your book as a sort of bad boy memoir i wonder what you would say to listeners you might think that despite the fact you're obviously an extremely talented artist they might still conclude that, that what you do is immoral because not only are you tricking living people but there are those who would say that it's insulting to dead artists as well to be reproducing their work. I want, I just wondered what your response to that kind of a criticism might be. Is it really insulting to someone who's dead that, that a painting comes out, sometimes they came out very well and they're getting credit for it. I wasn't. And I had four paintings in the Dumfries collection, not three. And they were absolutely mine. And I had no idea that they were going there. <laughs> I did paintings for James Stunt. By the way, I like James Stunt. After all of this, I, I thought, thought of him as a friend. I spent a lot of time with him. He was up all night and he would call me all the time. And do I feel guilty about this? I think that's really your question. Yes. Uh, that, this all happened 33 years ago when I was arrested. And along the way, I did not feel guilty. And then I did about five years after I got out of jail. But what can I do about it? But I get telephone calls from some of the art dealers that I dealt with. Remember, this is 33 years ago. Keep that in the back of your mind. And we would always talk about what anything happened. Have you ever heard anything from any all the art of mine you sold? And they nothing. The technology today is so much better than it was when I was painting. And so my paintings are still flying around the, the universe, going through one collection to another, being sold, resold, kept. And so far, I've heard nothing. I'm. This is not a victimless crime. Someday, they might be able to test it, test the ink, test, and say that it's fake. But as far as the world's concerned, they're still real. And they've been, people have been turning them. Nobody has lost money. Nobody says, oh, I spent all my money and I lost it. So do I feel guilty? Yes, if somebody gets hurt. But so far, nobody has. Nobody that I know of. Excuse me. Thank you, Chloe, Tony, and Jean-Pierre. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I do hope you'll join me next week for the special Christmas episode of the edition.